0: Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. It is, uh, it's is—it's my privilege and joy to get to lead us in our study of God's Word this morning. Uh, Christine, uh, my wife, is in the back middle table there. Hi. And uh, we've really enjoyed being uh, in this Sunday school class. We, we, As Joshua mentioned, we served in the college ministry as small group leaders for about six years and then have recently transitioned out of that. And it's been... Uh, This adult Sunday school is very different than uh, college. Not everybody in here is all in the same, like, six ages. And uh, so a lot of uh, varied experiences. I know there's people in this room who have been uh, walking with the Lord for longer than my lifetime, and others uh, maybe only a few years. And so it is, uh, (laughs) be careful, yes. So I stand uh, in, in gratitude of that, and just thankful for the church. Uh, if you just look around this room, I mean, this is a small subset of our local body here, but this is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We get to to share in our common faith and our common uh, salvation in our, our common Lord Jesus, and it's he who unites us. It's he who brings us together, and so we'll get to... Uh, Turn now to his word today. So as we do that, as you're maybe opening your Bibles, I I just want to go again to the Lord uh, uh, with a word of prayer. Let's let's pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege and the freedom to join together, to gather as your church here uh, at Countryside and, and even this small part of it here in this Sunday school class. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for giving us your word in our own language so that we can understand it. And thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation. Thank you for sending your son to be the savior of the world. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for for coming, for giving yourself for us And thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping us to understand and to believe and receive the gift of Christ. I pray now, God, that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your word. I pray that it would find in our hearts rich soil that is ready to grow up and bear much fruit for your kingdom, for your glory, God, and for our good, and for the good of many, for the praise of your great name commit all this to you with thankfulness and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn or tap in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be in verses 17 through 34. And as you're doing that, uh, I just want to sort of ask a question. How many in here have ever forgotten something? Maybe in the last, <laughs> maybe that's a little too personal. Hi, you've just met me and I'm going to go right for the jugular. How many of you have forgotten something? Uh, maybe a, a task that you meant to do, hopefully not an anniversary. Uh, the nice thing is, it, um, men, if you, uh, I might be tempted to forget an anniversary. You, you get announcements before Sunday school. Not that you forgot your anniversary, but uh, I'm thankful for those reminders. I think there was one time where I, I didn't forget our anniversary. Actually, I did. I confused our anniversary with the birthday of one of our children. And so, uh, I forget things a lot. I think of the words of my grandfather who would describe forgetting things sometimes as he would uh, run into an empty box car in his train of thought. And I think we have... Uh all encountered that, and some things that we forget are, are relatively minor, other things more serious, and, uh, and of course, we live in a fallen world, and so we have faulty memories, and, and sadly, we, we know of, of, of many who are dear to us, who as a result of our, our fallen state have, have lost a lot of their memories, and it's, it's, it's sad that we can't remember things. We want to remember things, and because of that nature of us in our humanity, we need to be reminded We need others to remind us, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind one another. We need to intentionally remember things, really important things. Uh, For those of you who have children or who have had children, uh, so much of your life is reminding your children of things that they should know and they have forgotten or ignored. And so we need to remember things. And so we're going to see that as a key theme of our passage today, is remembering something. More specifically, remembering someone, remembering our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. But not just remembering Christ, but how remembering Christ impacts the way we actually interact with one another as the church. You know, as we've seen over the last few weeks in and months in the book of 1 Corinthians, this is we've seen a church with a lot of problems. And... Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is instructing the church at Corinth, and we get to have that instruction to us as well on how we are to live in relationship to one another in the life of the church. Instructions that we too as Christians need to heed in our lives and in our church. At the core of the problem of the church in Corinth, I think you could summarize it as an underlying self-centeredness. The, the members of the Church of Corinth there were very self-centered, and that would flush itself out in so many different ways. They were pridefully prioritizing personal preferences. They were all about so much about what do I want, what's my preference, to the detriment even of their fellow believers and the church as a whole. And isn't that a temptation for us? Sure, we've all been convicted over the last few weeks, hopefully, of, of seeing ways that we might be tempted, uh, my, while we might be tempted to look at Corinth and go, wow, sure, glad I'm not like those spiritual problem children, to really examine our own hearts and see that we have self-centeredness. We have so many ways in which we are tempted and actually act out on prioritizing our desires over the things of the Lord and over the good of our fellow believers, We've probably indulged more than we would care to admit of the spirit of our age, of hyper-individualization, that it's really all about me, all about what I want. and I'm just full of thoughts of myself and how often we fail to fill our minds with thoughts of Christ and thoughts of one another. I think you could summarize the book of 1 Corinthians as simply, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. The church is not all about you, but rather you, church, all of us together, are to be all about Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul was rightly concerned of addressing this self-centeredness in relationships to one another, but also how it manifested itself when the church gathered together for corporate worship and at a time when perhaps they should be the most united, the most Christ-centered and others-loving at the celebration of the Lord's Supper I think it's amazing that in God's providence we get to turn to Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians about how the church should rightly celebrate the Lord's Supper today after so many of us just came from celebrating the Lord's Supper in the main service. And I pray as we look through this passage that um, we can give a hearty amen to the things that we see as, as what we've just celebrated together And I want to encourage you at the outset, as we're going through this, if you are convicted and encouraged, as I have been from God's word, about maybe ways in which your treatment and your approach to the Lord's Supper is not as it should be, know that the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is more than sufficient for those failings and those uh, frailties. And we get to celebrate it all over again next month. So if there's something you want to put into practice, you're going to get your opportunity. So that's all by way of introductions. Look at 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 17. From this point, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 11, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, and we're going to continue to the end of the chapter, where we're going to see Paul giving instructions to the church about the Lord's Supper. We, at Countryside, we affirm that our Lord Jesus has given his church two great ordinances, two great commanded ceremonies, one being baptism and the other being the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, baptism is commanded by Christ and is really a personal profession of Christ as Savior and Lord. It really is marking the new beginning, my new life in Christ after I've put my faith in him. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is a corporate celebration commanded by our Lord for us to rightly remember and value him and all that he has done for us in the gospel. And the the proper celebration of the Lord's Supper isn't a small matter. It's not optional. It's not unimportant. It's not unconsequential, as we will see. We need to know, we need to remember, and put into practice the instructions that Paul gives us for our good, for the good of our fellow believers, individually and collectively. So as we look through our text, I I hope that you will see that there are really four parts to Paul's instruction, uh, which really center around a central theme, which I think could be summarized in this way. Verses 17 through 34, I think, convey the idea that we as Christians um, should understand this, rightly remembering Christ and all he has done for all of us through the cross when we come to the Lord's Supper. This unites us together as Christians and should fill us all with a humble, shared love for Jesus, which then overflows into love for one another. We're looking at a lot of verses, so there's a lot of elements to this. So we need to rightly remember Christ and all that he has done for us individually and for all of us as the church. And we do that remembering what he's done at the cross as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by doing that, to that helps unite us together. It knits our hearts together in love for Jesus, which then overflows into love for one another. So in light of that, Paul gives four instructions, four parts, really, to his instruction concerning the right celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we'll see these as they unfold. We're gonna see first a ridiculous problem. They were celebrating selfishly. Then we're gonna see a right pattern Instead, we should celebrate worshipfully. And there is real peril if we celebrate unworthily. And then lastly, we see a right practice, how we should celebrate selflessly. Go back over these as we work through our text. So let's begin in verse 17 with a ridiculous problem that Paul is addressing here, beginning in verse 17. A ridiculous problem, the church, the believers in Corinth are celebrating selfishly. Look there in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. We see here that their coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper was firstly, it was not beneficial, and it was actually detrimental to them. The time when they should have been coming together and celebrating, gathering from their homes, from the field, from the marketplace, from the government position, from the military barracks, wherever they were coming from, all of that was being marred by how they were behaving at the Lord's Supper. It wasn't for the betterment of them, but it was actually for the worse. What was a blessing was actually turning into great detriment to them. And Paul says, I can't praise you for this. There's a big problem going on here. And what's going on is part of that problem. Verse 18, we see that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were not united, but they were actually divided in their celebration. Look at verse 18. We see it says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. This is not the first time that we've heard of divisions in the church. What are some of the things that have been dividing the Christians in Corinth? Apollos, Paul, Paul, my favorite teacher, your favorite teacher. Head Head coverings, do you wear them? Do you not wear them? Who wears them? meat do you eat meat sacrifice to idols or not what's going on with that is that okay other issues surrounding christian liberty should i get married no you shouldn't get married yes you should get married should we go to court no you shouldn't go to court yes we're going to court all of these things dividing the church but those divisions among the members as they lived their daily lives We've seen lots of that, but here we're seeing division on display as they're coming together. Notice it says, come together. That phrase recurs again and again in our passage. As you come together, as they should be united, coming together, it says, as the church. So there's a way in which we could conceivably come together, and it's just gathering, but it's specifically coming together as the church, as a church, verse 18. And he hears that divisions exist among you. And he says, and in part, I believe it. It's, it's, Paul, Paul believes this. He's seen this, and there are divisions or schisms among the believers. And Paul seems to indicate that he's almost conceding that it's not—it's not totally surprising that there would be divisions and factions in corporate worship, given everything that's been going on. And really, those divisions and factions actually reveal something. They reveal those who it says are approved. I hear that divisions exist among you. Uh, verse nineteen. Um, that those who are approved may become evident among you. Approved. The idea of something being approved is tested. It's tested to be shown that it's genuine. It's, it's, it's from a, a picture of those who would establish currency to see that coins were genuine. Are they the right weight and measure and size and all of that to do commerce? And so in the middle of these factions, those who are genuine, mature believers, are actually be, they're standing out. Because everyone else is divided around them, but yet here are some that have been approved by God, shown to be genuine, mature believers. And that's not really a surprise to Paul that there's divisions at their corporate worship. But thirdly, their worship, as they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, was not Christ-centered. This was a ridiculous problem because instead of being Christ-centered, it was being self-centered. Look in verse 20. Verse 20, uh, we read, Therefore, when you meet together it is not to eat the lord's supper for in your eating each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk what an amazing diversity of experiences what we see here going on is 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 likely more than just a worship service when we celebrate the lord's supper we we celebrate the ordinance itself in sort of the the simplest form with the bread and with the cup but at the church in Corinth, and as, as happens, I'm, I'm sure, in other churches even today, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was accompanying, accompanied by an actual fellowship meal. Uh, perhaps this is one of those love feasts that's mentioned in Jude 12, a picture of, of Christians who are gathered together from all different walks of life, sharing around the, the food that they eat, and then to sort of culminate all of that in taking the Lord's Supper itself. This was supposed to be a wonderful gathering, but that's not what was happening. Notice that they were not eating the Lord's Supper, but instead, verse 21, each one takes his own supper, and that the emphasis seems to be on, we should be looking at Christ, this is his meal that we're to be enjoying, but my focus is on my supper. The picture is of someone, maybe the, the wealthy who were able to bring a lot of food and arrive early to set up the potluck, if you will, or a pot providence, if you prefer, and to, to set the food up. And while not the whole church is assembled, maybe there were some uh, dock workers that had to cross town. Maybe there were some laborers in the field or some tradesmen, or for whatever reason, they were delayed from coming. And rather than waiting for everyone to be there so they could all enjoy it, they just went ahead and began and it was so bad that some were going hungry. Because of this, some were going hungry, and then others were overindulging and actually becoming drunk. They were treating this, which was supposed to be the Lord's Supper, like their own personal party. I think just very clear from these two verses that instead of being Christ-centered and Christ-focused, they're focused on themselves. What should be all about Christ and about each other was actually about me, and that's just almost ridiculous. And I think the reason I chose the word ridiculous in part is because of what Paul says next in verse twenty-two. What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. If 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 you wanted to get together and have a big meal and have a party go for it. You have homes to do that in. That's not what this is about. This is about celebrating together, joining together, and not, no, notice what they were doing. They were despising the church of God. To despise something is to de-esteem it. So something that maybe you should respect, but you're not respecting it. Or something that you should esteem, but you're actually de-esteeming it. I'm despising that. I think lightly about who is it? Who are, who are we despising? The church of God, the body, the gathering of the church. And then not only were they despising the church, but they were shaming those, shaming those who had nothing. That it means it was a dishonor or a disgrace to those. Maybe those who had very little or, or, or nothing who were looking forward to coming to the Lord's Supper meal where they knew they were going to be able to enjoy food around fellow believers in Christ, and yet they had nothing while others were getting drunk. Everything is all upside down the way this should be working, and it is, perhaps to be an understatement, Paul is not going to praise them for that. Uh, Implication being, this is not praiseworthy, but this is shameful. This is a ridiculous problem that Paul is addressing. He follows that then by the second part of his instruction, which is looking at the right pattern, the right pattern, celebrating worshipfully. The problem was that they were celebrating selfishly, self-centeredly. And if we're honest with ourselves, how often does that happen for us? When we come to the Lord's table, I'm really thinking a lot about me, what I want, what I'm going to do afterwards, what's kind of running in my inner dialogue, and I kind of have blinders on about the people sitting around me. We, too, are not immune from this problem. So we need the right pattern, the right pattern, which is to celebrate worshipfully, which we'll see in verses 23 through 26. Notice how we are to celebrate, and not that way. That's the wrong way to do it. How instead should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Look first in verse 23. We are to to celebrate the Lord's Supper worshipfully, firstly, following Jesus's directions, following Jesus's directions, Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. What well, Paul's about to say, he didn't make up. What he's taught them is not something he came up with. This is something he received and then passed along. Whether he received it through a direct revelation of Jesus, as he did other on other occasions, other things, or simply received it from the Lord as passed to him from the other apostles, like maybe Peter, Regardless, Paul is clearly showing that he is not the author of these instructions. This is Jesus' words to us. And the timeless truth of that is that we're not allowed our own opinion about what the Lord's Supper should be. We're not allowed to, we're not given the option to just make it what we want, We're not supposed to add to it or to take away from it. We're simply receiving it from the Lord in his word, and then we joyfully get to pass this on to the next generation. So we're to celebrate as the Lord Jesus instructed us. We're secondly supposed to celebrate worshipfully, allowing the elements to help us actively recall who Christ is and what he has done. And friends, this is the, the core of our passage. This is what both the front end and the back end point to, and that is Christ himself celebrated at his supper. Look in verse, the second part of verse 23, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is, what is Paul talking about here? Where, does, where do these words come from? From Jesus, and what event in the life of Jesus are these words coming from? The Last Supper, the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples just before his arrest and his crucifixion and his death and then his glorious resurrection. And we, you can find the full account of the, of the Last Supper in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, and in Luke 22. And in each of those accounts, putting them all together, and with Paul's words here, Jesus is taking the elements of the Passover meal, the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup, but is giving them new meaning. No longer is the bread and the cup to point back to God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, sparing them from God's judgment through their faith in the blood of the substitute lamb Passover had long pointed, now these elements would point to God's redemption of Jews and Gentiles, from slavery to sin, sparing them from God's judgment on sinners through faith in the blood of the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. These elements have been here then transformed by Christ with a new and deeper, richer significance. And depending on your background, you're likely familiar that different Christian groups and denominations associated with Christianity differ substantially, sort of pun intended, on what they teach that the Lord's Supper means, specifically as we see where Jesus says, this is my body, Within church history, there have been four primary views of the meaning of the bread and the Lord's table, and I'll, I'll summarize them briefly. But I would just commend uh, your attention to a larger treatment that Pastor Tom did on the the, the Last Supper uh, on uh, June 24th of 2012. You can find the recording and the transcript on the Countryside website where. Uh, Tom works through this, this text in greater depth, but just to briefly summarize, four primary views of the Last Supper, one, which is the Roman Catholic view, and that 's transubstantiation. If, if you came from a, a Roman Catholic background and, and heritage you 're very familiar with that. Uh, the way Tom summarizes this uh, quote, "Once the, those elements, the bread and the wine are consecrated by the priest, as the Catholic Church would teach." Um, once the priest says, this is my body, the bread and wine actually become the real physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, end quote. And quoting from the Council of Trent, uh, we we read, a change is brought about of of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This idea of transubstantiation. That's one view. Second view, which is the Lutheran view, is called consubstantiation. So con meaning with, consubstantiation. And here, uh, Luther affirmed that there is still something physical going on. As as Tom summarized it, quote, uh, what Luther taught and is still taught in the Lutheran church, that the literal blood and body of Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. So they don't become the bread and the wine, but they're present really in the supper. That's consubstantiation. Some of our Reformed friends would affirm what's called the spiritual presence, and in, in that view, something, uh, it's not something necessarily physical that's happening, but there's something spiritual. There is a unique spiritual presence of Christ that is given to the one who partakes through faith, as, as Tom summarized that. So yes, there is the actual supper and it's real bread and it's real wine, but there's a special sort of super spiritual reality uh, one might say is going on with the Lord's Supper. (laughs) And then lastly, you have the view that uh, I'm convinced that the scripture teaches and we are convinced at our church, which is the symbolic, or some people use the word memorial view. And that is that the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup are physical symbols, visible symbols or signs that commemorate and point to the spiritual work of Christ. And while yes, Christ is present wherever his people are because we are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. But there's not some special, the the super spiritual people are the ones who take the Lord's Supper and and you get sort of a, a, a mega boost, sort of an infusion of spiritual goodness just by taking the Lord's Supper itself. But rather, this is a very special time for us to remember and to reflect as we're going to see in our text of what Christ has done. And look back at our passage. That's just hopefully some helpful context. But look at what the Bible says. Verse 23, Jesus took bread. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Which is for you. Friends, in the bread of the Lord's Supper, we remember that Christ gave himself for us. Think of Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Christ gave himself, and we are to remember that he gave himself for us. That is in our place, as our substitute, And for our sake, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves, fully obeying the Father from birth till his death. And he continues in perfect, spotless obedience and fully, completely bearing the weight of the wrath of God on sin. Jesus did it all for us, for you, Christian, for you and you and you, and for us all, Christians. That is what we celebrate. It's not just for me, but it's for all who would repent and believe in Christ. How could we ever think of ourselves as superior to another Christian because of some factor like class or race or wealth or gender or intellect or anything else? We all stand evenly, equally before the table of our Lord to receive Impictured in that bread celebrating our receiving Christ himself as we have come to in faith. It is for us. And notice that he says this is given for you, and then do this. We are to do this. And the, the tense of that is not just do it one time and you're good, but do it and do it again and do it again and keep on doing it. And when should you do it? It says as often as you do it. So there's no no prescription that we should be taking the Lord's Supper every day, we should be eating meals together every day, or every week, or necessarily every month, but it should be regular, uninterrupted, prioritized by the church. As often as you do it, it is assumed and instructed that this is to be a regular pattern of the church. As often as you do it, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me, that word remembrance doesn't just mean mentally recalling something. You know, if someone were to ask you, you know, do you remember uh, the last time the Cowboys won the Super Bowl? And you might say, I no, I don't remember that. I, I don't. Or someone says, yeah, I can remember that. Or, hey, do you remember Joe from Montana that was here last? Uh, yeah, I think I remember. That's not the idea of the word remembering here. The idea of remembrance is an active recalling of something to mind, So think of it more in the terms of Memorial Day, where we remember those and and hold them in 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 our love and in our memory who have given their lives for our country, or the way we treasure the memory of a loved one, maybe a parent who has gone to be with the Lord. We remember them in a very intentional, active way. We are to recall it to mind. Think of the way we might say, you know, this is in loving memory of someone, We are to take the Lord's Supper in loving memory of Jesus Christ who died and who rose again. That's how we are to take it. That's to be the manner of our taking it. He gave us the bread. He also, in verse 25, gave us the cup. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The idea of a new covenant. Yes, God had given a covenant to his people Israel, a covenants to promises to Abraham, and then the covenant to the nation of Israel at Sinai, and the, under the Mosaic covenant, the people of Israel had been living under the sacrificial system and all the blessings and the curses of obedience. That had been continuing. But God also promised that there would be a new covenant. After that, Jeremiah 31 you don't have to turn there, but at least jot this down in your notes. Jeremiah 31, 33. The Lord says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and it will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. That was the promise of a new covenant that the faithful Israelites were waiting and waiting and waiting until Christ came. And notice that this is the new covenant in his blood, for it is the blood of Christ, the the blood of Christ. The the red blood cells of Jesus are not what it's all about here. I I teach biology, and it's really great to get to talk about uh, how Jesus shed his blood for us uh, to a bunch of pre-meds who are uh, studying how red blood cells carry oxygen. That's not what we're focused on. It's not the physical blood. But what is our blood? It is our life. If you get rid of your blood, you can lose an arm and still live. You can lose your liver and still live for a little bit. But if you lose your blood, you're dead. The blood, we see that in Scripture. The life is in the blood. And so when we see that Christ shed his blood, we're showing that Christ gave his life for us in our place. Because, and why was that? was necessary. He was necessary that Christ would shed his blood for us. Why? The author of Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 15 of Hebrews 9, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the in- eternal inheritance. This is a new covenant purchased by Christ's own blood. And like the bread, this is given for us. We see that in Luke twenty-two twenty, in the retelling of the last supper there, Jesus says, this cup is my blood, which is given, poured out for you and for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, for all of us, Christian. And not just one of us, but many. Mark 14, 24 says this is the blood that he is pouring out for many. As we celebrate it, we need to remember what Christ has done for us, how he has redeemed us with the cost of his own life. Lastly, How are we to worshipfully celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're to do that proclaiming the gospel till the day he returns. This is not just something we do one time and then stop, as I've said before, but this is something that we continue to do, and we are commanded here to continue to do it. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup. In a sense, We are proclaiming the Lord's death by taking the Lord's Supper. The idea of proclaim there is is similar to the words used for proclaiming the gospel. We're putting the gospel sort of on display. It's sort of a full sensory sermon, if in a sense, as we take the blood, as we remember what this bread is pointing to, the body and the life, the incarnation, the humanity, the perfection of Christ and as we drink the cup, as we taste the juice, we remember Christ shed his blood for us. His blood for us, removing the stain and the bitterness of sin and replacing it with the sweetness of forgiveness and redemption. And we're to proclaim his death. This part of our confession as Christians, we see that, we'll see that later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, uh, where we read Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we confess, But notice we don't just proclaim the Lord's death. Yes, the Lord's Supper pictures the Lord's death, but that's not all we remember. No, we proclaim the Lord's death, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11. What's those last words? Until he comes. Wait a minute, he died. We're proclaiming his death. How can he come? Because he is not dead, but he is alive as he said. So we confess also, the core to our Christian confession is that we confess that He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So as we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the gospel, the need of a Savior, the glory of the Savior, and the coming of our Savior again one day. And we do that until He comes. Think about it. The Lord's Supper that we celebrated today has been in a sense a long continuous feast ever since the Lord initiated it. We are sh- we are sharing in the same in a sense Lord's supper as every Christian who has ever believed everywhere where the name of Christ has been named from the the biggest city to the smallest village from 1000 AD to today We are all, as true believers, truly, worshipfully taking and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We are united together as the body of Christ throughout the ages and across the languages. And there are still, this is till he comes, and he's not come yet, and so there are still men and women in places where the name of Christ has yet to be named, who are going to be sharing in the supper of the Lord with us, in a sense. It's not over. The work of Christ continues until he is here again. We need to remember that as we take the Lord's Supper and do that to celebrate worshipfully. I wish that was all that could be said, but there is actually something we need to remember, and that is the real peril apart. part. This is the third part of Paul's instruction, the real peril, and that is celebrating unworthily. We need to be on guard as glorious a truth as this is, we must never become flippant or disrespectful in our appreciation and our approach to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the view that the, the elements in the Lord's Supper point to Christ in no way diminishes the gravity and the, the, the preciousness of what we are doing. Look in verse 27. Why do I say that? Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That is sombering words, somber words, sobering words, unworthy. What does that mean, unworthy? It it, it means irreverent or unfitting. It's, It's the opposite of worthy. So all of the ways that we might take the Lord's Supper in a worthy way where we are rightly ascribing worth to Christ and all that he has done and rightly ascribing worth to the glory of the salvation that we enjoy, here we're doing the opposite of that. Whether that is because we are divided and we're treating the Lord's Supper as just something that's all about me or I'm coming to the Lord's Supper as Pastor Tom encouraged us with unrepentant sin. I'm not rightly viewing myself. I'm not rightly viewing my need of Christ's redemption. I'm not rightly viewing the greatness and the amazing humility of Christ to die for me. I'm not thinking about that rightly at all. Instead, I'm taking it in an unworthy way. And this is serious because if we do that, the Bible says that we are guilty. That means in danger of or or even worthy of punishment for the guilt of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. We do not want to be considered among those who are guilty of putting Christ to death. And yes, we are all guilty of that. It's all of our sin, believer, that put Christ on the cross. But we're not glad about that. We're not celebrating that. We're not flippant about that. Far be it from me to sin against my Lord in this way. That's the attitude that we should have. This is serious. And and there's a guard that Paul gives us in verse 28, a guard against celebrating in an unworthy way. How can we keep that from happening? That's serious. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup interestingly, in a lot of our passage, Paul is writing to the church as a whole. You notice that where he says you. We don't necessarily see the plural you in our language. Uh, If you were to translate it in some of these passages, uh, the you is actually y'all, to put it in Texan speak. Y'all. So when he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to y'all, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for y'all. Y'all do this in remembrance of me. So this is instruction to all of us. But notice here in this warning, in this section about our peril, if we celebrate unworthily, the focus on each of us individually, the way we should individually approach it. Notice he says, whoever, 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 whoever might take this in an unworthy way. And the guard is individual. We are to be on guard individually. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat and drink. To examine, that is to approve, to test, to evaluate, to prove the genuineness of. This is the verb form of the word approved back in verse 19. We're to test ourselves, evaluate ourselves, be honest about the genuineness. Don't, don't let there be any pretending, any um, fakery. Let's be genuine and examine ourselves to to speak what is true about the state of my heart, of my need for the gospel, of my sins that I need to repent of, and the areas in which I need to grow. And notice he says, in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. That's not just a, you, you do it when Pastor Tom says, let's all examine ourselves, and then you continue throughout the Lord's Supper thinking about whatever you want. But in so doing, the manner of our coming to the Lord's Supper should be with an honest, humble, self-examination of our own heart. We're honest before the Lord. I'm not hiding anything, God. I want to say the truth about myself before you that's the way we should be coming to the Lord's Supper. Not looking out at who I can criticize and who I can scrutinize and how I might test each of you, but turning that to how I can test my own heart. And there's a danger. There is a danger of celebrating unworthily in verses 29 through 30. Verse 29, for he who drinks and eats, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, and sick, and a number sleep. Whoever does not judge the body rightly, the word judge here means to discriminate or to decide or to discern, to make distinctions. That means to to regard the body rightly. And there's some difference of opinion about whether this is talking about the body of Christ, meaning the Lord's Supper and what it's representing about Christ, or the body meaning the our condition as the united body of Christ, as the church. Regardless, we are to think rightly, discriminate, decide, discern rightly about what's going on at the Lord's Supper. We need to think about it rightly. And if we don't do that while we eat or we drink of the Lord's Supper, we're actually eating and drinking judgment. Notice that we're to judge the body rightly, that's active. And if we don't do that, we're drinking judgment, that's passive, as judgment from God. God is going to rightly evaluate us. And we would much rather do a self-examination before we have to come face to face with God's right evaluation of us, which we will at some point. And, and God does rightly judge. He rightly evaluates. Not judge in the sense of a, of a judge condemning the, the criminal to jail, but to think more of judge in the way that a, 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 an expert art E- evaluator would test the genuineness of a work of art, or its worth, or its value. That's the idea. Maybe think of it almost in terms of the uh, the state fair judging, where we're, we're ranking and we're, we're evaluating it properly to be true about what it really is. How does it really exist? That's what we are seeing. So we are to judge ourselves rightly, and if we don't, we are bringing God's judgment, his right decision, his right evaluation of us. And how serious is that for this reason? Because there were people in Corinth not rightly evaluating themselves. Notice, many. That's a scary word. Many of the people were sick. They were physically ill. They were weak. They, they lacked strength. And a number of them slept. That's, that's, a, that's a euphemism for sleep. They were for, for dead. They were dead. The Lord had actually taken their lives as a severe discipline of them. For there are consequences of celebrating in an unworthy way. Look at verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. In case there was a concern that being under the judgment of God means that God doesn't love me or I'm, I'm outside of Christ, all of a sudden, no, that's not what's happening here. The, the tenses of these verbs are, are subtle, but I think really important. Notice it says, if we judged ourselves, so that's an active right evaluation, discerning, making distinctions about my own heart and about what's happening in the Lord's Supper, okay, if I do that, then we would not be judged. If we're doing that, then we collectively are not going to be judged and come under that judgment of God. But if we do, when we are judged, that is by God, we are disciplined, So the judgment we are facing is not the judgment of a judge against a criminal, but the judgment of a father who loves his son, who loves his daughter, and will discipline them for their reckless, foolish, sinful behavior. The word discipline there is is training up a child, chastening them. So when we are judged, we are disciplined. And for the Christian, this discipline is as severe, so severe, even to the point that God would take them home early. It's it's almost like the father says, that's it. You can't stay at the party any longer. You're coming home with me because he loves them. And and notice that it says they would not come under the condemnation of the world. Now, we cannot come under the same condemnation if we are in Christ. Romans 8, one is clear about that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But rather, it is in part through the ongoing work of the Spirit. Not only that we were saved once, but we are preserved. We are preserved from ever falling away through the, the discipline and the right action of God in our lives. We do not risk coming under the condemnation of the wicked if we have trusted in Christ. But there is discipline left for us because the Lord loves us. And because he loves us, he will discipline us. Lastly, the last part is what, what should they do about it? What's the right practice? How does all of this end? Okay, we, we see the problem. They were celebrating selfishly, and we see the pattern, which is celebrating worshipfully. And then there's the peril, which is celebrating in an unworthy way. And lastly, the last two verses, the last, last three verses, celebrating selflessly. That's how you should do it. Verse 33 So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait. That word wait there doesn't mean like, like wait for the bus or just wait, you know, we're passing time because you're waiting for the next thing to happen. No, it's waiting the way a farmer waits for the crop. It's anticipation, expectation, waiting. You want the thing to come and you're waiting for it. Like a child waits for Christmas Day to finally come. That's more the idea of how we should respond. As brethren, we should look forward to worshiping together and be willing to slow down and Wait to not exercise my freedom, to go ahead and dig in to the meat sacrifice to idol casserole. I guess they wouldn't be celebrating that there. To celebrate it, that food, whatever they were sharing together, I'm going to wait because, because Barnabas isn't here yet. Marcus isn't here yet. Sophia isn't here yet. I'm waiting for them because I'm waiting for them to come so that we can share this meal together. So they should wait to celebrate with each other corporately, but also personally. There's a personal uh, right practice, and that is that, that they should restrain their appetite for the good of all. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So if anyone is hungry, and it seems to be clearly that this is someone who has the ability to eat at home, but is choosing to come to the fellowship meal and kind of pig out because they're just so hungry that they can't, I can't wait for anyone else, and to that kind of person who is able to eat before they come, it would be better for you to just eat before you come than to be tempted to, to abuse the Lord's Supper as you have been doing so that the whole body doesn't come under judgment you're going to restrain your appetite for the good of all and we've seen that theme recur throughout the book of 1st Corinthians haven't we where we are willingly going to set aside what i could do because of what i should do out of love for you and out of love for you and out of love for my brother so that we would not come under the collective discipline of the lord so as we conclude how do we apply these lessons how do we apply these these lessons about the right celebration of the Lord's Supper. Just some thoughts as you leave today. There's so much that we could continue to unpack. God's word is amazing. It's so good. It's like a mine full of gold and the deeper down you dig and the further in you go, the more treasures you find. I would encourage you in, in your week this week to open up this passage and, and study it afresh for yourself. But also, as, you're, as we conclude, three points of application. Firstly, what, what should I do in light of all of this? Number one, celebrate the Lord's Supper by rightly valuing your fellow brothers and sisters. Rightly value one another. And this protects us from thinking that we don't have some sort of of collective responsibility to one another. As I I heard uh, a pastor speak that coming to church is not just all of us having our individual quiet times all at the same time in the same room. That's not what corporate worship is all about. There's a purpose for it. When we come together, it's to come together as the church, especially when we come to the Lord's Supper. It's not just about me and what I want, but about all of us worshiping the Lord together. Remember that we are all beggars who have been made sons and daughters of the king. Remember, we're all at the same table, and it's not our table. It's not our supper. Friend, rejoice to look around during the Lord's table to see who Christ has saved. I would encourage you, next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as you're taking the bread and taking the cup, look around and look at that man and that woman and that man and that woman and that young person and that old person, how Christ, they're pro- they proclaiming Christ. They're proclaiming Christ. We're all proclaiming Christ together. And let our, let's let our selfless consideration for our fellow Christians spill out into then how we treat each other the other days of the week and the other days of the month. So, let us rightly value our fellow brothers and sisters. Let's also celebrate the Lord's Supper with honest self-evaluation of our own heart before the Lord. This protects us from thinking that I don't have a personal responsibility. Yes, there's a corporate aspect, but there's also an individual aspect. You, friend, I must rightly examine our own hearts, and that's the spirit we should have as we are coming to the Lord's table. I'm not leaving anything behind. I'm not not hiding anything, Lord. You see my heart. Lord, you know I love you, as Peter said. Lord, you know I love you. I believe, help my unbelief. We are honest and open before the Lord, and that's how we should come to the Lord. It's not our table, it's his table. Am I rightly assessing myself as a sinner saved by grace? Are you thinking too highly of yourselves? Are you clinging on to unrepentant sin of self-centeredness or, or thoughtlessness? You don't even think about what might be good for another Christian or any sin for that manner. And if so, don't wait till next week or next month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Don't wait. Repent now. Get right before the Lord now, Christian. And remember the seriousness of sin on display at the Lord's table. Sin is so bad that it took the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, dying in your place and in my place. If I'm ever tempted to think that sin is not a big deal, it's just a little sin. It's not that big deal. No, sin is requiring Jesus on the cross bad. That's how bad it is. That's how serious it is. And how great and marvelous is Christ's redemption. Finally, celebrate the Lord's Supper By rightly treasuring Jesus, whom the supper represents. Worship him intentionally. Orient your mind. Force it. Take hold of it. Don't let it lead you astray. Say, come on, mind. Stop thinking about tomorrow. Stop thinking about what they're wearing. Stop thinking about what was happening yesterday. We're going to focus on Christ because he has given himself for me. Think about who he is. Treasure him. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is the God-man, the Redeemer, the Substitute treasure what he's done, the incarnation. He stooped down to take on flesh. He lived in our place. He died in our place. He obeyed in our place. He paid for our sin. He rose again. He's redeemed his people from every tribe and tongue. Remember what he's done in your life, Christian, how he's changed you from what you used to be. Remember, Christian, what he's done since coming to Christ. Remember, Christian, what the Lord has done in your life since the last time you took the Lord's Supper. Let all of that fill your mind to doxology to Jesus as we take the Lord's table. Treasure what Christ has done and what he will do, for he will come again, and we proclaim him till that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good word to us. Thank you for how your word knows us. It pierces right to the heart. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Lord, forgive us for ever trying to hide something from you. Lord, you know us and you see us. Lord, we, we pray that you would renew a right spirit within us where we have sinned. Lord, thank you for saving your people. Lord, I pray for the, the man or the woman who is here today who hears all of this and their heart is not stirred because the, the, the table and the supper of the Lord is only offered to those who come on your terms in repentance and faith. For the rebel, the prideful, the the arrogant boaster, the one who will not repent of his or her sin is not welcome at your table. And they don't have this hope. I pray, Lord, you be at work, even as they think about what the Lord's Supper represents, that that would stir up in their heart an adoring love for Jesus, our great Savior. Help us, Lord, this week to think about you more, to to center our lives on you, and to think of others, how we might love them, serve them, consider them, put them first, that the world might see our love for one another and know we are Christians by our love. Thank you for this time. Be with us as we go for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.